0: Come on. One well, Lifeblood, this is George G and the time is right. Welcome to our monthly book club and welcome our author, strong and powerful David Bonson. Welcome, David.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me. Good to be with you.
0: Yeah, excited to have you on. David is the chief investment officer of the Bonson Group. It's a wealth management firm. His newest book is There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truce. David, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do.
1: Well, like you mentioned, I run a private wealth management firm. We manage about $3.5 billion for clients with offices in New York City, Newport Beach, Minneapolis, and soon-to-be Nashville, Tennessee. And in my spare time, I enjoy writing books that reflect the things I most care about in ways that are hard for people to, I guess, necessarily connect the dots. I do think the books I write are connected to what I do. Uh, This book on economic truths um, certainly is ideological, and yet I think there's profound application in how people think about capital markets, how we go about investing money at my firm. But more than that, because economics is to me the study of human action, I think that the book has a lot to do with what people do Uh, in their lives to sort of fulfill their own dreams, pursue their own interests, and how that goes about making for civil society and social cooperation along the way. And so even though it's not directly investment insight oriented, it has a lot to do with kind of the macro picture of how a society works or ought to work or is capable of working I think we're getting away from a lot of that, and the book, to me, is meant to bring us back to some of those basics.
0: Well, I appreciate that. Was there a triggering point, a tipping point, a light bulb, something get under your skin? What was what was the motivator for actually writing it?
1: Yeah, I guess you could argue that a light bulb got under my skin because um, <laughs> there was a mix of there was a mix of sort of illumination and yet at the same time irritation. Um, Look, I don't believe that a lot of socialists are going to read my book and say, oh, I don't want to be socialist anymore. Um, It's not necessarily intended to go change Bernie Sanders' mind. Um, I would love it if that happens. I think that the foundational truths of the book serve as a very persuasive, counterfactual to the socialist position. But my frustration actually lies with a lot of people on the political right Uh, of which I am one, um, yet who I think are arguing for free enterprise sometimes inconsistently, sometimes um, illogically, and, and often without a real foundation. They're arguing more emotionally or impulsively instead of with a kind of set of principles in mind. And of course, the funny thing about principles is that once they're there and in place, you don't really have the option of turning them on and off as suits you. And I think that... In the um, social dynamic we're living through right now, where people are worried about a lot of young people migrating away from free enterprise, I don't think that we're going to convince them with the arguments that people have been using. Um, The notion that free enterprise is a more efficient allocator of resources. Well, that is true, and I do believe that. But that isn't persuasive to young people who have bought in emotionally to the idea that free markets don't care about people or that free markets um, create winners but also create losers. Uh, I want us to make the argument that free markets have to do with freedom and have to do with the dignity of the individual and have to do with individual agency and responsibility. And so there are foundational reasons to believe in a free society And those reasons are often being ignored, and that's why I wrote the book.
0: Got it. Well, I certainly appreciate that. Do you think – so I always struggle. I think, okay, what I see on the Internet is is one thing, but what's really happening in the real world, is that different? So you believe that there are a lot of young folks out there who are – who are falling into, I don't want to call it a trap, who are thinking this way.
1: Yeah, but, you know, the thing is, is I don't believe that there are a lot of young people who love socialism. I I think that they might answer that way in a poll or a survey or if their, God forbid, um, humanities professor at college, asks them. But I think that their alleged fondness for collectivism or for some greater form of central planning in the economy um, is more a byproduct of an emotional distaste they have for what they understand about free enterprise. And so I try to contextualize that and I think that if someone right now is roughly 30 years old, they were entering a young adulthood right around the time of the financial crisis and more or less the bookends of their experience and their so far kind of limited taste of adulthood is watching mom and dad almost lose their house, this total significant washout in the economy around uh, excesses that, that took place. Um, I happen, I, my very first book by the way, Crisis of Responsibility, was about the financial crisis and I do make the argument that the excesses that took place to cause that crisis which has been the key defining moment for young people and what they understand about the economy, but that those excesses were governmental and Wall Street, but also Main Street. And so the narratives that have been written by the right that it was all the government's fault or the left that it was all Wall Street's fault, I think both give Main Street a pass. And in my book, I suggested there was actually a significant cultural and moral failure from Main Street in the crisis, but regardless, young people saw this awful event. They then go to college, take on a quarter million dollars of debt for a degree that gets them a job back at the Starbucks they were working at before they went to college, or an entry-level job at a company that might have taken a long time to get, and it pays them okay, and they've worked hard, but they certainly can't afford to buy a house, because those houses that their parents almost lost 13 years ago have now gone up in value so much that they're totally unaffordable and everyone sits around talking like that's a great thing and they have this massive student debt to carry. So my point is, contextually, young people have not had a great experience in young economic life. Now, of course, I would argue that every single thing I just said is not the fault of free enterprise. It is the fault of not enough free enterprise, of excessive regulation, of excessive cost controls, of a variety of circumstances. But I certainly do understand that from their vantage point, they see things that um, don't add up. And there is a certain defense or tolerance of crony capitalism that I think is poisoning the well for real free enterprise. And then causing people to look at a Bernie Sanders, who's a very effective speechmaker, whose uh, his oratory skills, his passion, his authenticity, but pretty compelling. You then get an AOC on the younger side, who's fashionable and presentable, and and um, has a, a effective way of reaching people with social media. And so these AOCs and Bernies become a little bit more shiny object-ish than they would have been otherwise when you combine that with the current context. I, of course, find all of it awful, but I want to empathetically make the case for why the cause of human flourishing is actually going to die in the socialist context and the cause of human flourishing is going to live brightest in a free and virtuous society.
0: Well said. So <clears throat> I've been thinking a good amount lately. I haven't come up with anything necessarily. I've just been thinking about it, David, about narrative. And it seems like uh, within the last maybe five five years or so, there's been so much talk about telling your story and having narrative. And now that's 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 not that it's displaced truth, but to a degree it has, or maybe that's what I'm thinking about. So when you write your book, there's no free lunch. Two hundred fifty economic truths. How do you how do you think about truth, and then how do you, because to tell a story you need to be able to tell a narrative, right? So how do you balance that? How do you think about that?
1: I think you're exactly right. I do believe though that there's a chicken or egg thing where. Um, our current fondness for storytelling and for narratives, it's rooted a little bit in some degree of narcissism. It's rooted to some degree in a bit of um, uh, attention span issues, but it is what it is. And and I, I'm not down on storytelling or narratives, but I prefer that when we t- communicate a truth via narrative, you know, I'm a, a Christian and, and uh, who would I be to criticize this because the whole point of, of the New Testament is Jesus spoke about in parables, you know. So, so storytelling as a way of communicating a truth has a very long history and precedent and is an effective thing. Um, but the point being it's rooted in the truth. And we don't get to make up our own truth as we go. And that's sort of the postmodern problem with narratives is that as long as it's it feels right to someone, there's a sort of relativistic um, way in which storytelling gets done. And my view is that there needs to be 250 economic truths that sit at the foundation of how we go about telling the story. Now, what are the stories of free enterprise? Well, the stories are billions, two billion more people brought out of poverty in 25 years than had been brought out in 2,500 years. Okay, that, that when free enterprise was introduced to certain parts of Africa and South America that it, it took a minute to totally change the world and to bring the global extreme poverty rate from 50% to 10% in my lifetime. And I'm, I'm not that old yet. Those are stories. Um, I think the story of uh, vertical mobility that one does not stay in the same income level or wealth level forever I actually, for a number of reasons, maybe because I do find narcissism so unattractive, I generally hesitate using my own biography. I wrote all of Crisis of Responsibility and tried really hard to not have to delve into it. But, um, you know, I've become a wealthy individual and a successful business owner and started my adult life with uh, 10 bucks in my pocket, no parents, no college education, and, and had quite a little uh, journey. And, it, and I don't say that to you. Um, you might be the first uh, podcast I've ever said that to, as a matter of fact, and, and I've done thousands of interviews in the last 10 years. But the reason I bring it up is that there's a story out of one who believes in the vertical, vertically mobile society, the aspirational society. And yet, I want those stories to be told out of a construct for a system that allows it. The risk and reward nature of enterprise, the, um, the allocation of resources, yes, but the ability to um, pursue one's economic dreams—that really come out of their life dreams. And there are there, the Americans love this stuff. They love stories of rags to riches and and overcoming adversity. But see, I don't think those things exist in the same way in a centrally planned economy. I think central planning distorts dream fulfillment. I think distort, central planning distorts the types of um, narratives that would otherwise paint a really glorious picture of free enterprise, like the, the life that I've been able to live. I, I, don't, I don't view it as a story about David Bonson. I view it as a story um, about a country that can allow such a things, about an economic um, landscape that can allow such things. And then now, well beyond my story, my story gets to be about managing the financial affairs of hundreds of other people's stories. And those stories are a daily inspiration of the magic of free markets, of, of the um, reality of the human person, that, that God made us with a dignity that we can overcome adversity in life, that we can accomplish great things and that we can be we're living in this era where everyone holds a, a phone in their hand and and they take for granted that this one little phone it you know when you go back over time all the matter all the material construction that's in that phone has existed for thousands of years and now we can get our recipes and our weather reports and communicate all over the world in 5 seconds with this device why because of the knowledge and ideas that flow out of free enterprise, and that when we uh, are able to impute knowledge and ideas into physical matter that we can do incredible things and that is a that needs to be told narratively, but we have to do it out of a foundation of um, the truths that make up the I, I guess the principles that make up the system of thinking
0: nice so. Break us or share with us how how the book is actually broken down.
1: So I did categorize it by um, I compartmentalized by different categories, but I put them in a certain sequence that was important to me. I start off talking about human flourishing as the aim of economics and move into human action is what economics is actually studying and then kind of go through a number of different categories that are application oriented you know, minimum wage laws, taxation, monetary policy. And the way I do it is I take a quote from a generally famous economist or philosopher or thinker, many of uh, which are, are have been dead for 300 years, many of which are still with us today. Um, but then I curated 250 quotes from various thinkers and economic leaders and then add my own commentary on each and every one. And so essentially, it's meant to be kind of a daily economic devotional reading, if you will. And um, I, I, think, I think it helps in bite-sized nuggets to give people uh, access to those foundational truths.
0: So your recommendation on, on how I should read it?
1: Yeah, I like the idea of people reading it, you know, one or two uh, a day. Um, and then kind of having that time to reflect on it, think about it, capture it a little. I do happen to know there are plenty of people so far that have been reading it all the way through. And, and you know, that, that is perfectly fine as well. But there's something about it as a sort of daily. It's written in a way that I think someone who reads it as a daily reflection might get a little more out of it.
0: Nice. I love it. Looking back, how, how, how long did it take you to write?
1: Um, the, the writing wasn't the hard part. It was the curation of all of those quotes. I didn't use a research assistant. I did it all myself. And, and that was a lot of work um, to kind of have to sift through you know hundreds upon hundreds of different quotes, a lot of which I just gathered organically. I'd be reading something and and find a quote I loved and then kind of translate that over and um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was a few months of uh, putting my my you know pen to paper with my own commentary. But the collection of quotes was the more labor intensive part of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I certainly do imagine. And do you do you enjoy writing?
1: Um, I absolutely love writing, and the only thing that might be a close second uh, is um, reading. And so either reading other people's writing or writing my own writing, um, those are the, the two things I enjoy most in the world.
0: Yeah. You shared with me that you wake up early in the morning. Do you have time that you block for reading and writing throughout the course of the day?
1: Yeah, that's pretty much what I'm doing each morning from 345 until you know the day starts is uh, a significant amount of reading in, in my world. Research is very important on the investment side. So that careful, um, concentrated, and quiet time to be able to reflect on bottom-up market research or top-down macroeconomic research. Um, I try to read about a hundred pages of market research every morning, Oof. and then I do a fair. I write a daily investment commentary at thedctoday.com, and by 6 a.m. every morning, about 80% of it is written for the day. And then I write a weekly macro commentary called DividendCafe.com, and um, that I, I really focus on the writing, and that's a Friday morning exercise. So I'm a creature of habit, and that's pretty much my routine.
0: I love it. I love it. 3.45, David. Amen. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, where can people learn more about you? You gave us a couple of the sites and where can they get a copy of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths?
1: Um, we ha- we created a special website for the book called nofreeluncheconomics.com, nofreeluncheconomics.com. And not only do we keep all of the different, you know, podcasts and video clips and, and media coverage, but there's a lot of excerpts and blurbs from other, you know, mucky mucks about the book there. And on the, right on the homepage is the link to go to either Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever someone wants to buy it. Simon Schuster has, has you know, uh, done a pretty good job getting the book at every bookstore as well. And so whether people are brick and mortar shoppers or, or Amazon or Barnes and Noble, it's out there. And um, the book website will give plenty of more information as well.
0: Excellent well if you enjoyed this as much as i did show david your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas pick up a copy of there's no free lunch 250 economic truths wherever you buy your books but go to nofreeluncheconomics.com and find all the information there and also get signed up for his daily newsletter his weekly newsletter and imagine what's the uh, firm's website david
1: uh, thebonsongroup.com and I'm sure they'll see the spelling of Bonson in your show notes. <laughs>
0: yeah. And that is the Bonson Group, B-A-H-N-S-E-N group.com.
1: Thanks again, David. Enjoyed it thoroughly. Thanks so much.
0: And until next time, keep fighting the good fight we are all in this together.